Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Free Devs and the Maybe. It's been a little while, but we're back and I'm joined by Ed Mann. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, sir. How are you doing? Yes, I'm good. I'm uh, back from holiday and uh, all rested and raring to go. So, yes. Can I can I just say something, right? I said at the beginning of the show, before we recorded, I was like, I'm a little nervous. And you're like, you? Are you nervous, really? And then you, you almost messed up that intro. So you must be nervous a little bit too. We've been off the airways. <laughs> Not even nearly. I did mess up the intro completely. So, um, yeah, well, it has been a while, hasn't it? As it has August, yeah. like mid, late August was the last one we released, which is way too long. So we're very sorry to be off the airwaves, where or the airwaves, the airwaves. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but we've got a lot to talk about, a lot of things to catch up on. So uh, I think we should just get right into it. So what have you been up to, Mixed Up? Into the meat. Um, what have I been up to? Okay, so um, I have. Oh, I've been on holiday. That was nice. And um, where'd you go? I went to Portugal for uh, very nice. one week and was very lucky the weather was good and didn't really go much further than uh the pool that was in our apartment which was amazing and it was just a good time to chill out with uh with toby and stuff and did you read any computer books because i know typically on holiday you'll uh, dabble in that did, well i took my uncle bob book uh the clean coder and um but i didn't really read an awful lot to be honest whilst i was away i did read a book about elon musk which was really really interesting really really good and uh the book i read was i think it was just called elon musk by the author was ashley vance i think i've not really heard of him but i'm i don't know if he's a big author in the states or whatever but uh really good really interesting kind of goes through the whole history of you know his childhood um you know living in south africa moving over to canada and the states and um, doing the whole silicon valley thing and yeah, it's really interesting because it it talks about him like he, he's obviously around at the the beginning of the web, and his first sort of big project was like a almost like a directory site, and I remember all those directory sites when the the web was first coming into life, and there wasn't really great way of searching for websites, was there? There was no well, Google really hadn't come around right at the beginning, and uh, so directory sites were the way to go if you wanted to find where sites were. And um, well, his one was a bit different. It was, I think, it was eventually called uh, Zip Two, which I actually thought, oh, it must be something to do with, like zip files or something. But it was, it was kind of like, well, you find a company and then it gives you like um, directions and then reverse directions, etc. And um, yeah, really interesting hearing about about that and sort of all the bugs that they had and how they got it off the ground. And I think he sold that site for about twenty two million dollars. I think it was, or his share in it for twenty two million dollars. So what a sucker! What a sucker! Well, yeah, it's interesting because we were talking today um, in the office where I work, and they were saying about some company paid about two grand to go on a directory site. And I was like, I'm amazed anyone goes on any directory site anymore. Like, can't imagine them having a place in today's market. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Like, like to put on like to some like some premium directory site. I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly, exactly that, and. Um, yeah, but no, it was really interesting. Elon Musk spoke, and obviously he went on from that to like, like working on PayPal, and then obviously SpaceX and Tesla, and yeah, I mean, 
like <laughs> I think so many people have called him insane over the years, thinking, oh, he's never going to accomplish this, and you know, he's every time he just uh, knocks it out of the park. And I think when he was a little boy, he apparently said, um, you know, when I'm older, I'm going to put men on Mars. And uh, like now, he's I think he, he said 2024 or something like that. He wants to put the first man on Mars. So you know. I, <laughs> It'd be interesting to see if he does. I, I certainly wouldn't put it past him to be, uh, to be perfectly honest. So, yeah, that was really inspiring. Um, apparently, in the book, it said that he's not the best coder in the world. He's obviously clearly a genius, though. Like with some of his uh, ideas and his understanding of things, he he's able to like you know take things like understanding rocket science and pick it up very quickly. But apparently, a lot of his programmers took exception with the way that he did things. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely recommend that book. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I've, I have been working my way through the Clean Coder book, and that continues to um, interest me and uh, keep me on my toes, really. So uh, other than that, what I've been working on at, at work, sort of I built uh, like an email broadcasting thing, which, you know, usually I would think, well, you know, don't reinvent the wheel when you've got things out there that do that kind of thing for you. But... <laughs> whilst I did think that it was tricky because a lot of the emails we want to send out contain information that's in our database and to get that information easily and send it all in one go it's it was kind of like it was easiest just to you know create this template thing and then you just throw this email on the queue and send them all out that way so um it's probably not the best way of doing things but it for me it seemed easiest but we sort of started using that in anger this week and we've emailed like over 2000 people and, and it's gone pretty well, to be fair. I think we've, we had like one issue, which was more human error than anything else, which was a bit embarrassing, but um, that was just where the subject went out wrong. But other than that, it's, yeah, it's gone okay to be fair. So uh, that's cool, man. Darn you. Was it autofill in in Google Chrome? Yeah, it was autofill in on the subject line, and and it put in the uh, the person who was using it put in their email address. So like, I think it was about eight hundred users got an email with uh, this email address as a subject line. So, uh, but even still, the response was pretty good. So, yeah. <laughs> so I love that subject. This is I, a great I, one. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just like a really pioneering marketing tactic. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Can I just say, actually, go to two things then. So the Elon Musk book that you read. So it obviously must have influenced you because immediately when you come off holiday, we get a WhatsApp saying that you're going to become an engineer and that you want to do an engineering degree. Firstly, is this true? And secondly, are you insane? Um, I don't know. I think um, I'm not saying it's going to be imminent but I definitely wouldn't rule it out in the next few years, me doing something. And obviously we're like saying I'm going to do an engineering degree. There are so many different types of engineering. So what would you specialize in? I really don't, I really don't know. I really don't know. But for example, like for me, like what really interests me is like, how does software in a, a washing machine work? I don't know. Like, and how does software in a car work? How does it actually impact the physical components? And that's what is like, to me, it's still like some sort of, you know magic and i'd love to sort of understand what actually is happening so so yeah i definitely wouldn't rule it out but at the moment i don't think i could afford it and i don't really have the time to do it but i definitely think i'd be tempted to do that at some point yeah no it's very cool man i love it i love it you're always mm. always learning that's got to stay hungry well you say that i think you know come back from holiday i think i, I need to push myself on something whether it's like different 
languages or something. I'm, I'm not really happy that I'm pushing myself enough at the minute. Yeah, it's tricky. I, I think a lot of my reading recently has been on more like uh, sort of s- syntax and, and how to code the right way, hence the Uncle Bob book. But then I have read, been reading the ES6 book as well. So, you know, perhaps being a bit too hard on myself. But I think, Exactly. I think like, reading these clean coder books is a, like, for me, that is a defining book for sure. And it's one yeah. of those like must reads. If you have a must read list in the computing world, you know, if, if you're mm. a programmer, that is definitely a book to read. And, you know, it, for me, it was very influential in how I, like, I decide to program, how I go about programming today, how I tackle a problem, how I think of the problem. So, no, I think it's a great book. And, and how are you finding it? Are you enjoying like the, the actual advice in it? Yeah, I definitely am. And it's having an immediate impact, to be fair. I mean, you know, I've sort of, I have started now trying to do more the TDD way. Uh, I am trying to write the test first before I do anything. And and then where I've found code that hasn't been tested, I'm now putting tests in, so I'm sort of retrofitting those tests and realizing how untestable my code I is. I noticed the tweets. That, that yeah. is funny, isn't it? When you start thinking in like, it's it's almost just like better design format, like design. But then it's hard though, because I say that better design. But what I really mean is, it's that trade-off between getting something done and making something that you can future-proof and that you can easily abstract out and test and all these type of things. I think that's it. And there's some things that take more time than others. Like, for example, you know, I kind of think, well, how do I test that a Stripe payment will go through? And all you can really do, I guess, is mock the kind of responses you would get from Tribe, so you know that you're reacting in a certain way. But that's it, like a contract test with you, and like, do you provide the right things to what yeah. Stripe provide, and what you know if they return these things, do I react to them in the right way? Yeah, and I think Uncle Bob says, doesn't he? He talks about I think like you're saying like abstraction, but like wrapping any third party API that you use, you sort of wrap it in your your own code and so you can make sure that it's it's more testable and then if you change that third party service then it's easier to test as well. So there's a lot of things that um yeah I I'm really bought into and uh I think some some things he sometimes says that I'm not sure about and um obviously there's always going to be that debate of what is good code and you know he says uh at one point of the book I think he says code that has no test is not good code. And that's kind of like, well, that's interesting because I'm sure there's most people who listen to this podcast will have code that's not tested. Does that mean it's bad code? I don't know. But his definition certainly is that it, you know, it should be tested. So it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's a very, very interesting one. And, and I think it's trying to apply rules to something which can be very abstract and very um, kind of your own opinion and personal taste as much as anything. But I do I do like some of the rules, you know, the the idea of breaking out functions, having a lot of help of private functions that kind of tell a story. You know, the idea is you're trying to explain through the code how you're solving that problem. Yeah. And then with the test, you're saying what the problem is that you're trying to solve. So obviously, if you have both, that helps. Because if you only have the code that's actually solving the problem, it's very hard to know what the problem is you're trying to solve without external documentation or just kind of a hunch that this is exactly what is, you know, why we're doing this. Yeah. Um, that's why the two kind of, I think, partner together with the test and the actual code itself. I, I say, you know, I, yeah, I, I think it's a great book and I'm really glad and pleased that you're going through it. Have you started looking at any of his clean code or videos? No, I haven't actually. I uh, I need to do that. I'll probably do that after the book, but it's still, I think I'm probably about halfway through and um, I'm really, look, one of the things I really want to learn about and I think I'm coming on to it now at the, at the moment in the book is kind of like testing things at like the um, persistence level. Like, and I'm always unsure, like, you know, for for example, uh, a bit of code that I wanted to test was, 
you know, again, when a payment comes through, which then has lots of things that trigger from that. So, you know, a payment comes in, which creates an invoice, which creates a PDF and all these kind of things. Well, do you create a record in the database? Do you have a separate database for uh, testing? And if you use a live database, you, you create it and then delete it afterwards. And I, I mean, you know, probably sound like an idiot to say these things. I really don't know what the answers are to those questions, but I think I'm coming up to that in the book. So. It's, you know, do you run with the fact of I want to test the whole stack? So I'm doing a whole integration test where, you know, where I'm really kind of just testing everything or a functional test more like, you know, where I'm actually testing the whole suite and that it all works, like they all marry together. You know, the fact that, you know, the persistence actually connects to the database, the database works, the triggers work in the database and all these kind of, you know, if you've got this abstract, you know, kind of like very split out system, um, you know, or do you kind of do integration tests where you're testing and integrating small bits together and plugging them in? And, you know, does my persistence, do I, when, I, when I do use this service, does the in-memory repository that i'm using actually you know kind of signal that this event occurred this kind of action occurred and it happened and it was a state change um it's it's all these different levels and it's kind of working out where you want to be and what for me it's about being confident in code so if i'm confident in my code without a test okay but I'm more confident always with a test. So it depends where that test is. Now, is it where, you know, is it at the very kind of like fundamental level, at the package level, at the domain level? You know, I want to ensure that these invariants stay there and I want to make, you know, I want to test that these invariants, you know, are, are invariant essentially. Uh, or, you know, and also does it, do I, am I sure that I'm going to save these records and they're actually going to go into the database and I'm actually going to, you know, create emails from them or whatever actions you're going to do. It's wherever on the scale you want to feel confident. And to me, honestly, I think just writing a test in itself is just a good thing like you can get into over kind of thinking it and and, and you know it's like oh i don't want to write a test at all because it will be a bad test and it's like no test is bad like, i know you're going to get brittle tests but at least a test is a test like, i know people say that some tests are bad because you know it's like oh but this test always fails or you know there's like these things but for me it's like well you've got to rewrite that test then firstly but i still think having that test is valuable because at least it's trying to show some aid in what the behavior of the program is i guess the other issue with that is when your application becomes so big and running those tests takes half an hour to and then you have to do that to deploy then it's kind of like then it gets tricky doesn't it yeah i mean that's i mean to be honest so we run like parallel test suites and stuff like that to help there um you know databases you're saying like with persistence using transactions for quick rollbacks and things if you are going to do persistent stuff uh a lot of the a lot of the stuff if you design things in a you know in a way where you have your domain logic and then you have your bridge you have you know bridging the gap between you that and the persistence and the delivery um you can kind of get away with very smaller, much smaller tests, like much quicker tests, because, you know, domain only hits things within the domain. It doesn't have to deal with any kind of external third party stuff. And then you slowly build yourself up. So, you know, throughout kind of tweaking the domain level, you can just run those unit tests. Uh, and then once it gets to like the, the Jenkins build, and then it starts running the bigger tests to see what happens. So you can kind of scale out, not having to run the whole test suite all the time and get slowly bigger levels of confidence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, after reading the Elon Musk book and reading about how hard it was to get a rocket up in space, it kind yeah. of makes testing your application and uh, debugging your application seem pretty easy. Well, exactly. So what were, there, were there tests for when, uh, you know, Pitbull Man went onto the moon? I don't know. <laughs> there must have been, surely. There must have been millions, I would have thought. But 
Yeah. Oh, well, who knows? Who knows? I'm going to have to Google that. I-, I will Google that and put some stuff in the show notes to see if there is, because it would be funny to see how much, you know, was it Was it just manual testing? Did they do their own form of unit testing? I don't know. Yeah. Get NASA on the podcast. That's what I say. That'd be good. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. they'd definitely come on. Three dozen a maybe. <laughs> so uh, enough about me. Uh, what have you been up to? What have I been up to, sir? Well, saying at the beginning where it's been since August um, and I was kind of I was looking through back at that podcast we did and it was a lot about Bitcoin I'll, I'll have to say you know that I am still on the Bitcoin train uh, learning about Bitcoin internals and stuff and I'm loving it it's so interesting the world of Bitcoin is just up and down markets are up and down all this kind of jazz with it there was a lot of like debate and discussion around Segwit2x and now that's been stopped so yeah you know fight the power and all that I didn't believe in 2x I said no 2x I was thinking you know we don't want that um, so I'm really happy with that. It, there's a lot of stuff in the internal stuff I've been looking into. There's really good uh, lectures and stuff that I'll put in the show notes that I've been listening to and reading. And then finally, it's kind of like I've actually tried to be giving back to it. You know, le- the learning resources is I've been starting to do some YouTube uh, videos and the cut, released a couple the last couple of days where I've just been going over some of the like JS bins that I've been creating in my own time to learn like how Merkle trees and Merkle roots work and proving Merkle proofs and how how you know bitcoin and the blocks bitcoin blocks what use these to verify transactions and stuff like that so i won't i won't gab on about it on the podcast but i'll just put it in the show notes if you're interested in that check out those videos and let me know what you think kind of another thing is i've, I've got into so i've got myself a hardware wallet so i've got myself a treasure uh and essentially that's as the word says hardware so you actually have a physical wallet in quotes that stores your private keys um, so that's quite cool and quite fun to play with. I've seen that you can actually get yourself, I think for a hundred quid, like a small ASCII, uh, minor USB minor. Now you're not going to make any money on it, but it's just fun to like learn how, you know, like kind of hardware, because ASCII mining is essentially programmed miners. So they're like in hardware. So the chip it based instead of software or instead of like GPU based and in CPU based stuff. So it's like kind of its primary design is to actually just do these hash you know these hashes at crazy speeds um but you aren't going to get any, you aren't going to get any money for it but it's just like a learning thing and all the all the, the comments on amazon say that where it's like you're not going to get any money for it but as a learning resource this is a great thing and i'm half tempted but i don't think i can like uh, ask amy hey i'm going to spend 100 quid on just something that's completely pointless <laughs> yeah yeah that's a tough sell that it is a little bit but no i, I mean I, I, yeah, it's, it, Bitcoin is a very interesting thing, and and the whole cryptocurrency spaces and and YouTube actually is is absolutely insane for the amount of like videos that publishes like people like us just you know publish videos and they're just super interesting and there's like you can just yeah get your own little like hub of subscribers that you like and kind of have your own little it's almost like your own little TV kind of show kind of programming where you have like oh yeah I watch that I watch that I watch that the daily updates and things like that so highly recommend just like taking you know taking advantage of what you can get on YouTube. Yeah, awesome. And then finally, uh, the big one is, so we spent probably, it's been, I think it's been like a couple of weeks now where we've made the switch, the full switch to AWS, Amazon Web Services. It's been in the pipeline for a while now. A A little backstory with it. So we've, we initially had dedicated boxes, uh, dedicated beefy server boxes in, in you know that we 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 owned essentially. So we had a couple of those. We had a database one, we had a you know a web one, and the web one would comprise of all of the applications, all the APIs, everything, supervisor, and we'd also have like one small one that was an AWS just so we had it distributed and out of the way. But yeah, so we were on hardware, dedicated hardware, and we got great performance for it. It was great value for money. 
it's one of those funny things where actually like you think about it you're like why don't you just stay on dedicated hardware because actually the value the bang for your buck you get is actually better for that and also you know like performance type things iops and things like that kind of performance with hard drives you know you've got the whole server you haven't got to worry about sharing with other people and you can kind of visually think of it you know you can kind of kind of conceptually think of it as yes this is a server as opposed to how aws you have to think of it a little bit different so we but we made the switch and we made the switch for a couple of reasons one is the fact that we want to be able to break out servers easier. So having dedicated boxes, one dedicated box, if someone wants to try an experiment or you know, maybe a, a group of developers, we're trying to expand the team, so a group of developers want to go and do something and, and try something out, we would have to configure all that on that one single box where everything else happens. Now, if that fails, you know, something has a problem, we have to deal with it in its entirety and it's kind of attacking the whole system because uh, again the one box you know growing higher growing vertically you're going to get this if the box has problems everything has problems um, and also it means like experimentation cleanup afterwards what if we don't need that that anymore what was if the api we don't want anymore but it's all tied into this one box and it just gets a bit messy so the idea of actually splitting out into different v you know different kind of what ec2 instances or virtual virtual systems is that you, you know you get this trade-off between the cost of it the power of it but also the flexibility of being able to just kind of expand and contract as you want so one of the things was you know to get that well we want to be ability to be able to test things experiment quickly change on stuff and be far more kind of agile in quotes about it all so that was the main aim for it and another thing was to take advantage of all the stuff that aws has to offer and that is a lot like if you go and look through the aws service list you will just see heaps and heaps and heaps and anything they got it if you want kind of serverless stuff which is you know one of the things they pioneered you know you've got lambda and you've got api gateway and you've got like CloudWatch events to be able to like you know kind of play around with that and again selfless plug on youtube i've posted a couple of videos on there uh, going through serverless uh, like the serverless like kind of framework and going through how you would configure that with lambdas and stuff i'll put that in the show notes as well i uh, had a lot of fun with that and i'm really enjoying playing around with serverless actually but yeah you know there's there's a host of them there's root 53 if you want to do with your dns records there's s3 which is like one of the pioneer ones you know ec2 and s3 are like the, the creme de la creme of you know being around for a long time and kind of changing the way we think of computing because that's another thing like i don't think of it as a dedicated box anymore i think of it as just this is a virtual instance if i'm spinning up an ec2 instance i can configure it from a snapshot i can save snapshots i can make multiple of the same server in fact that's what i'm doing now so one thing i need to do is i need to be able to create an ab test box so i need to just spin up another box that we can go to well i can just make a snapshot of a box i've already got put it up there change the deploy you know obviously to make it so it would be the different thing and boom i'm done and these things are instantaneous and quick and you know i can get rid of it and tear it down super easy as well so the flexibility is a thing. I mean, the pricing is a bit more. And actually, that's the thing where I do say for like, if you want best bang for your buck, go with dedicated hardware. Like if you know, and it's another thing is if you know your performance throughput, and that's another thing where you get with like reserved instances and stuff. Like if you know how much throughput your website is going to get, you can reserve instances on e- reserve EC2 instances and reserve space on AWS to get some savings. But the best bang for your buck is that just go dedicated then if you know that already. Obviously, you're not going to get the ability to you know use the services that AWS provide with the their ecosystem in their lovely world but you'll be able to use some um but yeah so like things like s3 and just there's a host of everything and anything uh if you want to deal with one of the things is i was like playing around with was like being able to 
do signups and user registration where they've got something called Cognito. And that's essentially kind of like a user management system all built for you. So, you know, the ability to be able to like interface with kind of like creating, you know, creating users and creating passwords, generating passwords, sending out validation, verification system, being able to use that then with serverless, with Lambda, being able to kind of pass into this as an authenticated route and all this kind of stuff. Just, yeah. I, I can go on and on and on and on about how awesome it is. Um, but so that, but there were a couple of things that did actually kind of gotchas, in fact, like we had with moving. And it was probably because of the fact that, you know, we came from a dedicated world kind of thing. Um, one thing was RDS. So we, we did move our database over to RDS, which is their, which is AWS's managed relational database system. Yeah. And they provide Postgres. You use it, I know. So, you know, you, you rave about it as well in fact i think i told you, you recommended to- it yeah <laughs> i did a mickey there where i i said to use it before i even used it but i'm glad you're using it um and you know it deals with stuff like multi-az which is essentially like being able to split out between multiple dedicated server farms so you know if one goes down they've got the other one available and then you know all this type of really cool stuff multiple snapshots snapshots daily snapshots ability to be able to do point in time snapshots you can actually say i want to do a point in time snapshot where it was 1619 on this day and i want you to snapshot to there and it will actually do it it's fascinating and it's all done for you with no worrying failover in az so failover to another system you know if one fails is all done for you perfect absolutely great but one thing is and this is trying to understand like from your dedicated or your current system how much you're going to need in the AWS world. So, you know, they, they talk about CPUs and they talk about that type of thing, but they really talk about like vCPUs and how much burst you have and all this kind of funky stuff. But it's understanding that what you're going to need and like where you're going to gauge. And one thing is we over-provisioned quite a bit on our RDS instance. So we did use provisioned IOPS first, which was essentially a, a saying we want exa- we, we want at least, so we're allocating that we want a dedicated, you know, 4,000 IOPS or whatever. So it means that the inputs and output reads per second on that disk are, you know, between that. So we can read and write very quickly because we thought, yep, we're going to need that because we're going to need that when, you know, obviously our database is the hub of our system. We need to make sure that we can take that over and we're still getting the same performance. Well, it actually turns out though that we didn't need that. And actually once we'd gone to provisioned IOPS, we were spending quite a lot of money on it because we were using multi-AZ as well. And actually eventually we just had to revert back to just general SSD. So these are things you kind of have to bear in mind that you may over-provision at the beginning and it's trying to like tail it back and stuff. Sorry, I had the exact same thing and we were paying for it for like six months. I, I didn't realize how expensive it was. Like, I don't- it's ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, I guess one of my criticisms will be like with the AWS, you've got the price calculator. I couldn't find anything with RDS that was like that. I mean, obviously you get like the the billing forecaster and it just show you a breakdown of the price, but it's quite hard to predict at times I found, but um that's one thing, obviously, is like calculating because they do it pay based on different metrics, you know, per yeah. second, per minute, per hour, per transfer, throughput used and all this. And then you're thinking to yourself, well, how much throughput do I use each day and all this kind of stuff? It's like you have to, especially if you're trying to invest and go into it, you don't really know. Like you have to work it out from your current system if you can and monitor that for a bit to be able to do an accurate measurement or you just take the risk over provision a bit so you can kind of cater for it. But I know what you mean by that. It's funny though, because like general SSD and, and these are the kind of weird abstractions and games around 
playing in this world as opposed to like the dedicated world where general SSDs are, you have IOPS based on how many allocated gigabytes you have. So, you know, if you have 100 gigabytes, you're going to get certain amount of IOPS, read and write. And then if you get 250, you get a bit more and all this. So you're actually cheap. It's actually better off maybe getting like a 500 gigabyte general SSD with, you know, whatever calculated IOPS that is, and then using provisioned IOPS at a certain less gigabyte because we're thinking, oh, yeah, no, getting less gigabytes, will it be cheaper? But it's not. And it's this playing this game of working out. And another one is the T instances. So a lot of the fun things people do, you know, like when you're experimenting stuff, is you'll use T2 micros and T2 nanos and all that stuff. And the T2 micros are great because they're in the free tier if you want it for the year. They're the cheapest one. And they're cheap because they're shared really shared and in that you are sharing those cpu resources the idea is that you're trading off the fact that you're not going to be using that cpu you know the full cpu usage all the time and in fact what you have is this concept of a cpu burst rate so you have cpu credits and the idea is that you get to allocate you know using up a burst of say every you know a cpu burst rate of four hours a day or something so you can work at max at that time and so that means then they can obviously cram more instances on a system hardware physical hardware system because they know they can actually you know tailor and cater for that but you have to bear in mind when you're playing the game of aws that you know so i was doing it was working fine everything was working lovely i then ran and did a backup which sparked up a lot of postgres pg dumps because i was doing like five jobs quickly doing a backup on this box and then it all started to grind to a halt and bad things happened and i was like why is this happening it's like oh yeah because you've exhausted your cpu credit balance and i exhausted it you know within a certain like ridiculously quick time because of this game and then you, you move from like the t instances to then ones that are dedicated like the c's and the m's and stuff which will provide you with constants a c is from compute where you know you'll get a constant cpu compute cycles you can use m is the just the general which is kind of like the boost up to the t from the t's but m is what people kind of would use and consider this a real server because i can use as max of the cpu as i want i don't have to worry about this kind of stuff and then like the r's are for memory and there's so many different instance types you can play with um it's 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 great i mean it is great you'd be able to spot you know spin this up do an experiment tear it back down um but again it comes at a price if you're doing on-demand stuff it's going to be a lot more and you need to reserve things so you have to play this kind of game i think it's just kind of like the new cloud service world it's just so different to how we used to think of it if you go down the reserving model do you have to pay a certain amount up front or something like that i so you get even better savings if you do that. Yeah. So you can you can pay kind of like per month or you can like, I think you have to pay a little bit up front and then like kind of trickle it in. Or you can say reserve it for the whole year. I know I'm going to use this or reserve it for like five years or something or whatever. And and like, I mean, there's other games they play. Like I call them games because it kind of is. It's just like this playing the game of AWS. There's like whole lectures and guides on how to best optimize pricing on AWS because it's such a complex thing. But you know, like the, the game of like spot instances so spot instances are this idea that i have a bid price so they say okay this is how much it's going to cost at this time to run your your instance for an hour or something you have a bid price you say within the hours of like six and whatever in the morning or something i want a bid price that if it goes to this bid price i will start my instance because i'm happy to pay that much for that compute and i'll do my stuff and then it will say okay you can't have it anymore and it will shut it down and do it you know and continue and kind of recursively do this now that's a game which is great because it allows people who want to do these massive computations but don't want to spend all the money on this hardware to be able to over time you know as long as their compute their program actually can handle it 
you know, to do these computations at a very cheap rate. And there's been a lot of good use cases where people have used things like spot instances to, to get take advantage of it because they can run it at like ridiculous times, you know, of the day and just do some compute and shut it down again and do it again. And, you know, they're only paying a certain amount because it's their bid price. But all this stuff you wouldn't get in a real world, in like dedicated world, because you'd have the box and that's it. So it's really is such a different way of playing. The other thing actually is uh, learning this stuff. And, and I really recommend a cloud guru, uh, their, their website, acloud.guru. Really great resources. They constantly go on about how the, pretty much the whole site is based in serverless. So it's based in Lambda, based on API Gateway. Uh, you know, it's very cheap for them to run. That's that's another thing with Lambdas are, you know, you only pay for when it's running. So you don't have to provision servers. You don't have to worry about servers and you only pay for how long you're using that lambda for up to five minutes which is the max but yeah so you know i would definitely recommend a cloud guru and just youtube as well has been great for like learning different aws stuff yeah i'll definitely check out your videos it sounds really interesting but um yeah i must admit i you know i also use rds uh for my um from the databases uh, what do you think about moving from DigitalOcean to aws because you would get more performance latency wise like being in the same az yeah, uh, I, I don't know. It would take quite a lot to convince me to leave, to be honest with you. Really? Yeah, quite. well, I, I like DigitalOcean. Um, it's one of those things, I mean, you know, I usually will think about moving if, if I'm unhappy with something. It's like that whole kind of, if it's not broken, then I don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, have you thought about moving your database then over to DigitalOcean and just kind of... Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very reluctant to uh, say change things when, uh, I mean, we've all seen what happens when things go wrong and it's, um, that kind of thing puts me off, but I, I don't know. I mean, what do you, how much latency do you think there is then? You would get benefits. Yeah. Um, because the, I don't know where the, the digital ocean server actually is. I don't know, it's London, yeah, maybe. It's London. So you're going from London to Ireland. Um, you would you would probably get benefits even if you wanted to stay on the AWS stack of just moving your RDS instance to the London region. Um, you know, because this is when we, when we started just getting into physical kind of things. I mean, these are milliseconds and stuff, but every request doing that just adds up over time. You know, really being really quite like, no, I don't want, you know, I want sub-millisecond times and all this type of stuff. And again, that was one thing with our dedicated boxes where between the actual proximity and it was a dedicated line between our database and our web server. So we were getting ridiculously good times and, and, and actually design of applications. You know, we wouldn't worry too much about kind of doing a load of queries because we knew we could deal with it on the dedicated side. But moving over to AWS, you have to deal with a little bit of latency, no matter what. You can get some provision. You you can get some placement groups and stuff but that's typically not really for what we're using like to placement groups and things are when you want to actually share between servers and stuff and actually share the compute so you're going to have like dedicated in quote lines between them but you know typically you're going to still you're going to get uh, you're going to get greater latency luckily it was hasn't been as big a problem as we kind of feared it would be but it's something to bear in mind so do you have anything with DigitalOcean anymore then I have my personal stuff, but I'm actually thinking of moving that over. They do something with AWS called LightSail, which is actually very similar to the DigitalOcean approach where you want to pay five bucks a month and that's it. Because obviously the AWS model may save you more. Like if you do a T2 Nano or T2 Micro, it's actually like $3 something or $4 for the whole month. But people like that kind of model of like, I pay $5, that's it. This is what I'm getting for it. And that's what LightSail is essentially. It's the clone of what DigitalOcean is. Similarly, actually, I've noticed that DigitalOcean are taking and doing things called Spaces or something, which is their clone of S3. Like they're trying to use the S3 model because S3 is just the bee's knees. Like it's amazing. So cheap. So talk to me about S3 then because... Uh, someone else has been talking to me about S3 and 
it just all seems like witchcraft to me at the moment. How, how does it all work? So S3 is, is essentially, it's object storage. So it's not block storage, meaning you can't just put a file system on it. It's objects, meaning like images, documents, and things like that. And essentially, once you put it up there, it's safe forever. You know, you can upload people's files onto it. It will then do replication between different AZs. It will have it in multiple places in the same AZ. It does all this funky stuff behind the hood, under the hood for super cheap, like storing it, gigabytes of stuff is super cheap. It doesn't matter. They, I think they provide like the 12 zeros actually for losing your data and it's 99.99 for actually availability of it or something. But yeah, it's stupidly good for storing stuff. We use it all the time for all our uploads for people because uploading to their means then obviously you don't have to store it yourself it means then that multiple servers if you're going to have like a load balanced approach where you know all these servers want to be able to actually access this stuff you can just have it up in s3 it's just the best like it is the best solution for that and they deal with everything and it's infinite storage you can consider it infinite storage of objects so yeah you're right because i got an email uh last night saying uh digital ocean introducing uh object storage but I, what is so what format do you when you send this data to s3 what how do you what format data do you send it in you, you just upload it you upload the file so you can upload it in the browser you can upload things using their command line you can upload things using all of these numerous different api plugins and stuff in different languages for it etc um you know it's just all it is is just uploading files so it's essentially like a file system in the browser that you can use you know well not a file system sorry it's like yeah objects you have to consider them as objects so they're just like files that you upload not block storage where actually it's like a you know, a real because EBS is block storage in the AWS world, which is like for operating systems, etc. Objects are just things like images, pictures, and all this stuff, all the assets that you're going to need. So, in terms of like, say you send like uh, you upload five pictures of yourself because you're obsessed with taking selfies, and absolutely you want to keep a record of those files that you've uploaded to S3. How do you keep a record of the connection between you and those files? So what you would do is you would upload, so you can pass it through. So you can say, okay, you don't even have to store it on your own server and you can pass it through. And it provides you with a unique URL, um, which you then would store in your own database to actually, you know, to be able to access it. So you would be storing, obviously, the metadata around it kind of thing, you know, where you want to store that. I mean, this is what Dropbox uses. Dropbox has its own metadata servers, but actually the actual objects, the real storage is actually still in S3. Okay. Well, that sounds really, that is Definitely something I'm going to look into then because at the moment I know I won't go into details in case I get like hacks or anything, but I've got files stored in a place where I don't want them to be stored. So I store them in S3, encrypt them. You can store them encrypted, you, you know, and it just deals with it. Now, one other thing as well, which is a great and beautiful thing about S3 is also its close relation CloudFront. And so what CloudFront is, is it's this AWS is CDN. But the beautiful thing about CloudFront is, is you can essentially, everything in S3 obviously is stored, say, like I store my things in S3, I store it all in the island region. Well, my customers are in London. So I can use CloudFront, which will actually just get all the stuff from S3 or like the things that get requested for S3, go through the edge nodes, which are actually stored physically in the different geographical locations. So edge nodes are like all these different places in the world where they actually have these servers. And it will just go and get them in a very quick line they have to S3, go get them and store them in their cache for a while or however long you know, you've know you got a TTL for or how long they deem they want to keep it for. And so you're storing stuff and they're retrieving it some very close geographical location to them which is invaluable if you've got like sites that are covered you know obviously worldwide or if you've just got stuff that you want to make sure close proximity to where people are okay so here's another question so you were talking about and quite rightly talking about the the nice ecosystem that, that amazon has 
say, uh, this probably sounds quite unlikely, but say Amazon Go bust tomorrow and they say, oh, you know, thanks for being a customer, uh, bye. How difficult then would that be to... This is, this is, you know what, and this was one of the debates we had for moving. You know, you move to these systems, you are reliant now on them. The fact that they are a massive big fish and you know we're just like a small one compared to them a tiny one compared to them you kind of feel like yeah we can piggyback on you and you'll we'll be all right we'll, we'll just reap the rewards of what you can give us things you can think of are like provisioning boxes and stuff like at the moment ours is still kind of ec2 boxes provision stuff there we have s3 it's true but we can get stuff down so we make backups rds and stuff so we make sql backups daily into our own external sources so through to other you know, like say Azure's or through to the Google platform. So other services that have will then store that information. Because the idea being is, as you say, if AWS goes down, we need to better provision and get up and set up back online our boxes. Now, what's funny though is, you know, it's who you store things with. Like, you know, if you're using Route 53, it's which parts of AWS go down. Now, if the whole thing went down, uh, if we're using Route 53, we can't point our server to anything else, our domain. So we're kind of screwed there. But, you know, if you use that as an, ex- in an external resource, you know, you who hover or whatever for it, you can then think maybe what you would do is you'd have all your system on AWS, but then you'd be able to replicate it on a Google platform or an Azure platform and have that as backups if you really cared about that that you know you feared for that as much i'm not as fearful on that you know I, i've kind of lessened that because of the fact that how you know the rewards are so much greater it's it's one of those things you kind of have to you know as you say kind of change your way of thinking but things using like puppet and being able to provision servers quickly if you're still using a server-based approach the thing is when you start getting into things like serverless and dynamo db and if you start really thinking of these things and start using those yes it's a lot harder to be agnostic and kind of be a base level because at the moment all of our servers are just easy to instances but they're just debian instances which then have our software on so as long as we can run a debian instance of stretch we can then just go up from there but once you start moving over to using all these different things you then have to realize yes you are kind of tying yourself up and what are the pros there there's cons there for sure but you know you kind of have to realize you know think okay how am i going to you know do your doomsday but see what is you know what is beneficial for us it's obviously the database is one of the primary ones because that's where the data is we need to have that offshore essentially out out of their mitts and in another place just in case something bad happens it's true have you ever considered just hosting everything on your macbook I, I think that's the best way because I do think that only people should be able to access stuff when I'm using my MacBook. Yeah. So when my MacBook's on, I think, you know, that's a prime time for people. And also I love it when IP addresses change, especially if they're like, you know, if your private IP address changes. So people just don't know where it is. You know, it's great. Well, yeah, you send an email out. Uh, it's changed. Exactly. Updated. Just, uh, yeah, change your host file after yeah, this, please. Exactly. I mean, that's the future <laughs> right there. Oh man, but actually I will say a couple of little things. So there's been a couple of bits security wise that I've been doing, a couple of tools that I've been using. So one of them for security auditing is something called Linus and it's really great. And it kind of just is a comprehensive suite of just running, it's a bash script. Essentially, it's like a massive bash script that runs through and goes through and checks loads of different things, configuration files, user groups, et cetera, stuff like Nginx, um, Apaches, if you're running things like file integrity scanners and stuff and all these things it does. So it's really good, like a comprehensive thing of just kind of getting a general overview of how your server is health-wise. Uh, another thing I've been uh, setting up is AIDE, which is Advanced Intrusion Detection Environment. And essentially what this does is so cool. You you take a snapshot of like directories. So you say, I really care that the boot directory, the user directory or the Etsy directory, the var directory and all these different certain bits in them. I want a snapshot and say, Please tell me, you know, snapshot exactly what 
that state is at this time. So this is a safe state. So, you know, you've got the all the different MD5 hashes, SHA hashes of all the files. You've got the different groups of the files. You've got if, when they've been accessed, created, all this other governance. Store that bring it into like a remote location. And then what you're able to do is every day or however long you can check. So you can bring it back in, you check, and you can see if anything's changed. And it will tell exactly where it's changed, when it changed, et cetera, and all this type of stuff. So you can see if there's any been any intrusion. You can see if someone's like kind of maliciously put in a back door or maliciously put in a root kit or something somewhere and trying to hide it. They can't get away with it because of the fact that this is in place. It's a great bit of software the other thing i've put in is also cronapt so one thing again like managing your own systems is great for certain things but it also can be a pain like you have to keep them upgraded like you have to keep all the systems up to date and especially when you start getting up you know you have a couple of systems fine but then when you start getting out into the eights the tens the twenties the you know hundreds maybe it can get a bit of a ball ache and to try and manage all these different systems so I use something called CronApt, and essentially what that does is it just on a cron basis, it will just run apt update and then what is actually going to be updated. It will download the packages but not install them. And then it will send an email out to me saying, hey, by the way, this server needs these updated. So I can then go to that server and just do the updates for it. It's just a great way of kind of trying to automate some of these processes. I mean, really, you do like with safe upgrades, you could probably just do auto upgrading. Another thing you do is like, you know, using containers and things like that and images. So you just like pre-built images, you do an upgrade image, you then just release that and to shut down the other one if you want to do immutable servers and stuff but there's so much cool stuff that you can do um but these have been a couple of little bits that over the over the last couple of weeks i've kind of really enjoyed well on that note sort of tidying with what you just said and i'll make the last thing i say because probably most of our listeners have stopped listening now so it's probably just me and you but um <laughs> one of the things i like i was told like you know when you first install php the first thing you do is turn off the the setting where you stop the ability to execute on uh, on the shell. Uh, is it shell exec or something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. But obviously that could be really useful. And for me in particular, without giving too much away about um, the infrastructure that I built, uh, we have like a reseller system. And even though I sort of second guess whether I made the right choice at time, I have to live with it now, that all our resellers get like a cheap throwaway version of our software. All the business logic is done on the API, but they, they've just got like this, little throwaway HTML application with the interface and everything. And in a sense, I want to make it so I can click a button and that will then create this instance. It will create all the, the host name, et cetera, et cetera. But I can't do that without opening up those functions, enabling those. I would say I would say maybe don't doing it in PHP and doing it just in Bash or something then. Like do it in Shell. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably the easiest way. I, I do think, you know, you're right with like the PHP stuff. The thing is, though, is the PHP command line and being in the PHP web is different. So, you know, if they've got access to your command line, you're screwed already. So allowing the shell exec and stuff on the command line isn't bad. It's when it's in, you know, obviously, if they can do uploads and if they pass in with gets and all that typical kind of yeah. horrible stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. One to think about, I think, for sure. Yeah, it's just more that I, I don't want it to have to be a programmer who can do that. I want it to be someone in in an office who can just, right, we're just creating this new reseller. Boom. Yeah, I mean, that is the problem, isn't it? Obviously, if you're in a web interface and then you want to be able to invoke this thing, it's hard like to without him doing an exec or something. I mean, maybe it'll be a case of it adds a record to a database that then gets supervisor or something to pick up or cron to pick up that they want to do it. And then like, you know, there's that kind of bit in the middle, the invert, like kind of breaking up that that thing that's a really yeah. nice workaround yeah i like it you could do that you know it says oh they've invoked this and it's like every five minutes we'll then do the upgrade if we need to yes good thinking man <laughs> excellent 
doing well today i'm happy with you oh man well i, th- I think we can probably call this a wrap now as you say i don't think many people are listening to us anymore and we, i know i've definitely just rambled on and on and on yeah it's just me you and my mom now so uh, that's it and my mom as well so and, hi mom as well we, we yeah, yeah. hi moms yeah hi moms that's great oh dear all right man would you want to do the the closing salutations or whatever we call it I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank you so much for putting up with our rambling. And it's been great to speak to you all. Uh, we will be back soon. That's a lie. I don't know when we'll be back. but I, know, I love it. You should say that. Just soon is good because it's ambiguous enough. They won't know. Well. They will never know. No. They'll never know. They may, we may never even release this episode. That's true. Who knows? That's true. Yeah. Well, if you're listening to it, you know we have released it. So it's kind of, yeah, pointless. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.